like to uh, celebrate the goodness of the Lord and uh, respond with uh, ourselves being thankful. We invite the ushers forward to receive our offering. We still take an old, the offering the old-fashioned way every service, even though most of us give online. But we do this because we still feel it's important to give an space for each of you, even as you pass that bag, to say, thank you, Lord, for everything you've given me. As we give... Uh, you received when you walked in an invitation to our Christmas Eve services. Everyone have that? I just want to clarify that's not for you. I mean, you're invited, but this is for you to give away to a coworker, a family member, a friend, and invite them to Christmas Eve. I want to say three things about Christmas Eve. It's, it's one of our favorite things, days of the year for three reasons. One, it is an opportunity for you to neighbor. We plan this service with your friends in mind. This service is very joy-filled. It's the news of Jesus. It's very contemporary yet classic. It's a fun service. And uh, people even who come year after year who aren't normally uh, going to church will comment to us, hey, I really enjoyed that. So bring your friends. This service is for them. Secondly, if you can on Christmas Eve, we need help that day. It takes hundreds of people to pull the day off, specifically greeters, helping people park in the parking lot, people to line the concourse, direct people. We need a lot of hands and a lot of friendly faces that day. So if you could come to one service and serve one service with us, we would be greatly appreciative. So you can stop at the info barrel out in the hub, leave your name, and we'll get in touch with you. And then lastly, one of the traditions of Christmas Eve is that we take an offering. But this offering, all of it, goes to an outside organization every year apart from Waterstone. This year, we are so uh, happy to announce that the offering will be going to a partner church called His Love Fellowship. They serve down at 9th and Calumet, some of the poorest uh, sections of the city, and every year they do a Christmas store where they feed and give gifts to over 500 families, 500 families in the inner city. So we want to come alongside them and support and help defray costs, and uh, so please plan on an offering on our Christmas Eve service. We look forward to it. Hey, um, have you ever received a gift unexpectedly from someone you don't know that well, more of a stranger than a friend? And then, to your consternation, it's actually a nice gift. Something you didn't know you wanted, but you're glad you have. What's the first thing that we tend to do when we receive a gift like that? Response gift, right? That gift seems to lay a claim on us, and we're uncomfortable in that person's presence until we're able to reciprocate. All of that's to say, and see if you agree with me, I think most of us tend to be better givers than getters. Now, I think there's two reasons for that. First, sometimes it depends on the nature of the gift. Like when your family member gets you a dieting book for Christmas. <laughs> or maybe a friend gets you a book, Overcoming Selfishness. I mean, how do you sign the, the thank you note? Uh, thank you for calling me fat and obnoxious. I mean, 
Sometimes it's the nature of the gift. Sometimes it's the nature of our heart. We can be prideful. And we never want to be in anyone's debt. We never want to have the adjective needy anywhere near our name. Which is why when Jesus sent, or the Father sent Jesus his gift to the world to us, (laughs) we had little to do with it. I mean, it was beyond our imagination, grisly shepherds and glorious angels and peasant parents, and oh, pregnant virgin, we could have never thought of it, we still don't understand it, and uh, we rejected it, him. But there it is, there it is, an unexpected gift from a God more stranger than friend, a gift that seems to lay claim on us. Merry Christmas. We are talking about what Paul describes as the indescribable gift of Christmas. Last week, Nick talked about the gift we have now of eternal life. And today, we want to talk about the channel of how that gift of Christmas comes to us, and that channel is called grace. And today, we want to talk about the gift of grace that Christmas is. And we're going to do it in a strange sort of way. We're going to look at a a part of the Christmas story that hardly anyone ever talks about. In Matthew, he begins the Christmas story with a genealogy. So with great anticipation and excitement, let's read it, shall we? The genealogy of Jesus. It's on the screen or Matthew chapter one. By the way, you can thank me after the service. I'm not going to read all of it. And I may read it rather quickly, because you'll get the idea. Matthew 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And in uh, grace to you, we jump to verse 16. (laughs) And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. The word of the Lord, even genealogies. There are two things from this text that help us understand the gift of grace. The first is we want to talk about the why. Why does Matthew start with the genealogy? What's the purpose of a genealogy? What do we learn from the genealogy? And then the second, 
help, way to help us understand this gift of grace is to understand who's in the genealogy. Why the genealogy? Who's in the genealogy? How many of you have ever done any research on your ancestry? All right, well, yeah, it's a lot of us. Big business these days. Before Ancestry.com, my great aunt, Kitty, who is now in heaven with a bunch of our ancestors, um, she actually traveled Europe and researched my mother's side of our family. My mother's maiden name is Butler. What she found encouraged us all. First, we have a castle. It's in Kilkenny, Ireland. It used to be under Scottish control. Butler's a Scottish name. And uh, I've got a castle in my jeans. <laughs> this is the Butler Castle. The other thing she discovered is that uh, the Butler family is uh, descendants of a man, you may have heard of him, called William the Conqueror. Battle of Hastings, 1066. He became at that battle uh, the King of England, the first Norman king. I don't know why I'm doing this. It just feels really good. So. <laughs> William the Conqueror. <laughs> you might remember that from the Norman line of kings in England, a uh, document was produced called the Magna Carta, which was the first governmental system to advocate the rule of law, which influenced the American Constitution. You're welcome. What does any of that mean to me and you? Absolutely nothing. You see, in our day, we don't throw pedigree around, usually. There are situations we might, but usually family tree doesn't get us much of anywhere. We don't put things like William the Conqueror on our resumes. What do we put on our resumes? We put our skills, our experiences, our degrees, our individual accomplishments. We live in an individualistic society. But in Matthew's day, family was everything. The respectability of your roots was your ticket. And it was vital to know the people you are connected to. And that's exactly why Matthew begins the Christmas story with Jesus' credentials. We need to know who Jesus is. And in Matthew's culture, that was about roots. So let's quickly look at his roots. First, we see that he was the son of Abraham. That's the Jewishness of Jesus. That's vital for the community to whom Matthew writes. But secondly, what's most emphasized in the genealogy is that Jesus, the son of Abraham, is the son of David. Now understand that in Matthew, what he's doing is giving us Joseph's genealogy, Joseph's side of the family. And you remember that because of the virgin birth, Jesus is not actually Joseph's physical son. However, he is Joseph's legal son, which means all that Joseph is entitled to, Jesus is heir to. Specifically, Joseph has the bloodline of the kings of Israel in him. Now, what I think so cool is that when Luke tells the genealogy in Luke chapter 4, whose genealogy does he give us? Mary's. And we find in that genealogy that Mary is a direct descendant of David through a different son. Joseph came through Solomon, 
Mary came through David's son, Nathan, which means that Jesus has through Mary, David's blood in him, and Jesus has through Joseph's, uh, Joseph, uh, David's throne in him. He is an heir to the throne. And, and Matthew makes this unmistakable. Did you hear a certain number repeated again and again in the genealogy, just in the short piece I read? What was that number? 14. Why 14? It's not literal. There were more than 14 generations in each of the three segments. By the way, three is the perfect number. But what does the number 14 mean? Well, and the rabbis, when they taught it with Hebrew, ancient Hebrew gematria, they talked about David's name uh, and the consonants, four plus six plus four. That's the name David. In Hebrew, Daleth is the fourth letter of the alphabet. Vav is the sixth letter of the alphabet. So the value, numeric value of the letters of David's name is 14. And guess who occupies the 14th place in the genealogy? David. Everything's about David. Everything is to show Jesus is the son of David. He fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies which said that the Messiah would be the son of David. So you see what Matthew's after. Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's foolish Jewish. Jesus is the son of David. He is the Messiah, the one who was promised, the one who will bring the shalom of God to the world. But there's one other little sonship issue that occurs in the smallest particle of the Greek language, but which explodes every language. It's in verse 16. If you look at it, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. That's the New International Version, which is the one we use. That's just a good, smooth translation. Here's how it literally reads. Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, from whom was born the Messiah. What you need to know is that whom is a relative pronoun in the Greek language, feminine singular. Which means Jesus is the son of Mary and only Mary. Which is Matthew's way of describing what? The virgin birth. In the smallest particle of the Greek language is the most explosive truth in the world. Because what it means is this. Jesus is the son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of David. And Jesus is the son of God. By virgin birth. Do you know what Christmas means? Here's why we celebrate. This baby means that the son of God ruled the world from the womb. This baby's life, 33 years, was bracketed by a, a virgin's womb and an empty tomb. This baby came into the world through a door marked no entrance. And he left through a door marked no exit. I'm getting excited here. You, you need to help me preach right now. We preach. Are you ready? This is the credentials of Jesus we preach. This baby is the son of God who worked in the creation of the world. This baby is the king of 
This baby is the God-man who performed miraculous healings of the diseased and dying. He would appear with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration to pull back the veil of his glory for an instant. And that was enough to put Peter and James and John down on their faces from the trauma of the holiness. This baby is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Good preaching. Jesus, his credentials, son of Abraham. Son of David, the Messiah, Son of God. So what do we do with that theology, those truths? I think the other interesting thing about the genealogy is it gives us some application by implication. The implication is this. You can never judge God by a calendar. We want to. We're always upset that he's never on time. From Abraham to Jesus, 2,000 years to fulfill a promise. 2,000 years. God seldom operates by our frame of logic or our time frame. But yet, he is always engaged and always writing. And as we've been talking about a lot these past few weeks, the way God, the author of history, is writing history is using crooked sticks like you and me. I mean, who was Azor or Akim? Who was Eliezer or Eliad? Who knows? But in their generation, they were part of the Jesus story. A hundred years from now, when people research their ancestry, your name will come up. Who were they? Who knows? But in their generation, they were writing the story of Jesus. My friends, you are always writing. Always. And it gets down even to the to the simple moments of every day. You see someone coming towards you you work with, your mind is writing furiously. Do you like them, do you not? Do you say hi to them, do you don't? How do you greet them? You're always writing. It gets down to the very moments of time when you are deciding how you're going to greet someone in the day. What I want us to take from this genealogy is that we are the ones called to proclaim the glory of the Son, Jesus, and to tell his story in this generation. And that gets to every moment, every decision, when you have another person in front of you. You're always writing. So that's the why. Let's look at the who. The why of the genealogy is Jesus' credentials, and we are always writing them 
for this generation to see. But the who takes us to even a deeper grace. So if you were in Matthew's original audience and you read this, you'd be struck that he mentions a woman. In an ancient patriarchal society, that would be rare. If you did mention a woman, it would be a woman of very high and upstanding prestige. It would probably be Matthew mentioning Sarah, the wife of Abraham, or maybe Rebecca or Rachel, the wives of Isaac or Jacob, the more upstanding patriarchal wives. But Matthew is very intentional and very strategic about the not one, not two, five women he includes. Let's do a brief resume sketch, shall we? There's Tamar, a Canaanite, which was an outsider, outside of Israel, not a part of their society, not a part of their culture, unwanted, a Canaanite. She is most known for an incident where she dressed up as a prostitute in order to seduce her father-in-law, Judah, who was neglecting his family responsibilities and not caring for her. He seduces her. They have a son together. And that is the line of Jesus. Tamar becomes Jesus' mama through an act of incest. Rahab, an outsider, unwanted in their society, and a real prostitute. Ruth, say it with me, an outsider, unwanted in her society. And a questionable marriage proposal where she comes into a guy who's asleep, Boaz, uh, and uncovers his feet and all of it very symbolic. She's basically proposing marriage to him, but if anyone would have seen it, it would have been a scandal. Now, Bathsheba, we know it's Bathsheba. Did you notice that she's unnamed in the genealogy? How was she referred to? The, the wife of Uriah. More on that in a minute. A victim of a powerful man's abuse, David takes her for himself, questionable marriage, an affair. And then there's the fifth one, marriage, an unwed pregnant teenager claiming to be a virgin. Seriously, if you were part of her community and you saw the baby bump and she said it's an unconventional pregnancy, God made me pregnant, would you have believed her? No. Do you get the picture? Social outcasts, moral failures, unwanted women. It's not only that he chooses these five, it's that he's also referencing some of the worst moments in Israel's history. This whole incest thing, that is always against God's law in every instance of the Bible, incest. And this is the absolute worst moment in David's life 
one of the worst moments in Israel's history. You may remember that Uriah was one of David's mighty men, one of 30, who helped him attain power and keep power, and probably a close friend of David. So it's not just that David sleeps with one of his friend's wives, but then to cover up the pregnancy and the whole affair and to keep David's reputation intact, he kills Uriah, a murderer. I think that Matthew doesn't name Bathsheba not because he... He doesn't, or he wants to slight Bathsheba. It's because he wants to slam David. All of this means this, and this is why you've come this morning. The family of Jesus is composed of moral failures, social outcasts, adulterers, Participants in incest, prostitutes. The family of Jesus contains the broken and the weak, the flawed and the afflicted, the insulted and the misunderstood. Oh, it's time for you to help me preach again. Here we go. Bring up my, the message the, re, the kingdom of God is an equal opportunity employer for sinners to become saints. It does not matter if you've deliberately hurt or even murdered people or how much you've abused yourself. especially those stigmatized by the suspicion and wounds of sexual sin. This is why Jesus hung naked on the cross. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Amen. So today we're going to leave with this genealogy in our minds and in our hearts what does it mean to leave here with the gift of grace? Two quick things. First, it means that we are givers. We carry this grace to whom? Moral failures and social outcasts. We carry this grace. Now, 
You and I both know that our culture and every culture is good at encouraging us to look down on some people in order to feel feelings and fruit of superiority. So in our culture, we look down on people. There's certain walls that are put up. People of different races, different ethnic backgrounds, different economic levels, different citizenships. We put up these walls. Our culture encourages us to look down on people with too much education because they're snobs. Our culture encourages us to look down on people with no education because they're slobs. Our culture encourages us to look down on people of different political parties because they're the ones ruining our country. You and I know the walls, all the walls. Walls of sexual identity, walls of gender, walls of, of, uh, again, different nationalities. And the point of the genealogy reminding us that we've been gifted with grace is that we have a different set of values in this room. We understand that Jesus looked down on us and had every right to look down on us because he is morally superior. But when he looked down, he saw we needed help. And what did he do? He came down. Not at risk of life, at cost of life. And he lived the life we should have lived so that we could be righteous in God's sight and perfectly obedient. He gives that to us. And he died the death we should have died and gives that to us to forgive our sins. He looked down, he came down. Why? To lift up and make moral failures and social outcasts like us part of his family. And that is our value system at Waterstone. Lift up. But in order to get a heart like that, you need to understand that before you're a giver, you're always a getter. You give because you've received, because you have been graced. We get ready to sing and proclaim the gift of grace in a moment. I want us to sit for just a minute in what it's like to receive grace. We're led by a quote from a great writer named Frederick Buechner. Before we're givers, we're getters. And here's what it means to get grace. Grace is something you can never get, but only be given. There's no way to earn it or deserve or bring it about any more than you can deserve the taste of raspberries and cream or earn good looks or bring about your own birth. A good sleep is grace and so are good dreams. Most tears are grace. The smell of rain is grace. Somebody loving you is grace. Loving somebody is grace. Have you ever tried to love somebody? A crucial eccentricity of the Christian faith is the assertion that people are saved by grace. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to do. The grace of God means something like, here's your life. You might never have been, but you are, because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. Here's the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Nothing 
can ever separate us. It's for you I created the universe. I love you. There's only one catch. Like any other gift of grace, like any other gift, the gift of grace can be yours only if you'll reach out and take it. And maybe being able to reach out and take it is a gift too. So whether you've never done it before and talked to God about receiving the gift of the grace of his son, or whether you've done it a thousand times, would you rise to your feet and let us receive again the gift of grace and proclaim our allegiance to Jesus Christ.